The hypothesis of plant life appears still the most satisfactory explanation of the various kinds of dark markings and their complex seasonal and secular changes. On the Martian surface features, and that was in 1955. So even in as recent as 1955, they thought that the dark bits on Mars that you can see from Earth were vegetation, and that was the most likely explanation. It's funny, isn't it? I know it's just not a, not a long time ago, considering what we now know. No, I mean that's only what <laughs> 12 years before we went to the moon. Brilliant. And so, yeah, um, I think it's uh, we've come a long way since the canals, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, seeing your own veins in your eye. December the uh, <laughs> December the seventh. Uh, actually, I, I just I thought I, just as we were coming online to to speak to each other, Chris, I just watched SpaceX launch their newest version of the uh, Cargo Dragon and successfully mm, they land snuck that one in. Yeah land another booster so that was quite exciting uh so good on them good on them uh december the 7th is also well known because it's uh 1972 the last ever launch of an apollo mission apollo 17 and that was the one that took the blue Mm. blue marble picture as they left earth beautiful and sad and poignant i think 48 years that's a that's a long time since we've been strutting about up there well, I'm I'm really glad that they did, so that I can say that we went to the moon in my lifetime. Because that that's only just I've only just snuck in, being a 1971. Yeah, baby. I didn't get that. No, no, yeah. you're a loser. I didn't even get the year of I didn't even get the year of punk. I can't even claim that. <laughs> did you not? You know, oh like, my god! I almost remember 79 punk. of me, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> I just um, remember getting spat at. <laughs> oh, what? 79? Oh, my gosh, that's so young. Yeah, that's 79, that, I mean, baby. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Only just snuck in the 70s, let alone <laughs> saw the, yeah, in, inside moon landings. Uh, Galileo spacecraft, yeah. that, that, got to, that got to Jupiter in 1995 on this day after travelling for six years, after they launched it on Atlantis STS-34. But my favourite of all of these is um, the JAXA's Akatsuki spacecraft, which has, which in 2015 managed to get into orbit around Venus after cocking up the first time. So it, it literally just missed it because they couldn't fire the engines properly, couldn't get into orbit, yeah. and then had to spend its time wandering around the solar system trying to come up with a new way of trying to get into orbit around Venus. So it's actually a, a massive triumph of orbital mechanics to get the thing back in orbit around um, Venus. It arrived five years late, but hey, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Better late than never. Um, a couple of birthdays as well. We've got to say happy birthday to Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi, 
who was an astronomer born on this day, apparently, although I find that quite dubious that we can go all the way back and <laughs> nail it to December the 7th, uh, in 903. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, you know, we have no idea what day people were born back no, then. I, no, there's no know. way, because like the calendars have been so screwed up over time. They're just so, so unlikely. Because there's also Isaac Newton was supposed to have been born on Christmas Day, wasn't he? But if it depends what calendar you look at. So yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, do you know who else was born on Christmas Day though? Definitely, um, our Lord Jesus. <laughs> Definitely was. Um, only nine hundred, <laughs> only nine hundred years before Abd al Rahman, and about the same yeah. time, about the same time as Ptolemy, who Abd al Rahman used Ptolemy's book, the Almagest, and sort of made it. Uh, well, was one of the very first Arab. Arabic astronomers who took that work and and basically got all this Greek the Greek masterpieces and started expanding on it and uh, he mm. wrote he wrote a, a, a huge book himself about the brightness and positions of stars and tried to mix the Arab and Greek constellation names because obviously when you look up at the night sky and you make up these constellations the Arabs had come up with a completely different bunch of constellations to the Greeks and they overlap and they don't you know Orion isn't isn't the same group of stars as whatever the Arabic equivalent so that was it in itself quite mm. hard but yes uh, Abd al-Rahman is one of, is considered one of the great Ten or so Arabic astronomers. Uh, which one of them came up with the uh, frying pan? The frying pan. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably your dad. <laughs> I think it was my dad. Yeah, there, it must have been. There's kind of two been. cosmic. There's kind of two cosmic fl- frying pans. I, I, when you look up at um, the Seven Sisters, that looks like a small frying pan, and the plough, of course, looks like a, or the Great Bear looks like a um, large yeah. frying pan. It is. There's something telling us in the in the stars that we should be eating more fried food, and that goes directly in the face of of nutritionists. It does, doesn't it? I I actually did have fried bacon and fried egg on toast today, and it was absolutely delicious. Oh, and I keep, do you gorgeous. know what? I, I I'm very close to becoming vegan. That's just on purely on on ethical grounds. But uh, I man, yeah. man, man, man. I, I know. I, I I can't even think about it. I can't. But anyway. Another birthday, and the reason so why they keep I was... making animals out of lovely, lovely meat. Don't they? That's the problem. I know until they stop doing that. Actually, there was a story, wasn't there? That uh, <laughs> they're starting to sell lab-grown meat in some country somewhere. So yeah, it's not long, How not long think? now till we can have lovely bacon yeah. that's that's grown in a lab somewhere. I'm totally up for it. Have your bacon and eat it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they'll be able to grow it on Mars. They'll be able to grow it on the Moon. Oh my gosh, that opens up a whole, whole new thing doesn't it um it's it's anyway it would have been kuiper's birthday today as well on december the 7th 1905 he was born died in 1973 so so actually helped with the apollo landing sites and would have seen the last apollo Mm. just uh and he's he he is the father of modern planetary science essentially and of course the kuiper Mm. belt is named after him he discovered miranda Uranus's satellite and uh, Nairid, Neptune's satellite, natural satellite. He discovered carbon dioxide yeah. in the atmosphere of Mars, the methane-laced atmosphere of Titan. Gosh, you know, Oof. he's the daddy-o. 
So uh, happy birthday, Koi. A busy life. Wherever you are in the universe. Yeah, happy birthday, mate. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Did he know he'd have the belt named after him? I don't know that. I'm going to have to look that up. Does he know that? Did Was the yeah. Kuiper belt named before or after Kuiper's death? It's a nice thing to go to the grave with, that, isn't it? Yeah, that would be, well, sweet. I'm sure there's plenty of um, asteroids named after him, et cetera, et cetera. There always is, of course, as, as previously discussed. Yeah. I've got about six now. I've got a great interview. You, yes. know, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chap on who was talking about space elevators, and I was being very sceptical. Yes, indeed. I was a bit sceptical too. <laughs> well, we were, we were both very sceptical about the whole thing. Well, after that episode, I was contacted by Dr. Peter Swan, who is, and he really hmm. is, Mr. Space Elevator. This guy has written so many books on it uh, over the last 18 years as well. And he's he's a proper academic from the International Academy of Astronautics. Um, he's also, like me, mm. <laughs> a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society. Uh, and he loves he loves the British Interplanetary Society. He gave it a big, big up. But yeah, he, he, he basically got in touch and said, look, actually, it has changed it, over the last couple of years. Space elevators are a thing again, and we, we need to take them seriously. So the interview is basically an hour-long chat about space elevators, and, and it's very, very exciting. And actually, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I am a convert back to the space elevator idea. I think over the next 10 years, we might actually see whether they tr- truly are feasible. So this is definitely worth... Nice one. Definitely worth listening to him because, you know... He's okay. been there evan- evangelizing it. But the last couple of years, thanks to some, well, thanks to the University of Manchester, of course, uh, is one of the big is yeah. success stories here. So as you'll, as you'll hear. Before we get to the uh, interview, Chris, why are sample return missions like buses? I mean, you're waiting for one. And then two come at once. Uh, that that is eventually what I got to, but I thought it was because you're worried about getting a virus from them. <laughs> <laughs> like these days, you look at a bus and go, mm, "Yeah, not so sure. I want to mm. get on there." You were actually you're actually right, Chris. Of course, yes. You, you wait ages for one, and then two come at once in one week. I mean, it's absolutely insane. So, I'm going to talk about the Changa Five. I've looked it up since we, mm. we we were hacking it to bits. The Shunga Five. Shunga. It like after we spoke last week, it has done so many things. <laughs> so it yeah. launched before last week's podcast, but that was it on on the Long March Five on the, on the twenty third of November. But on the morning, the thirtieth of November, the lander with the ascending vehicle uh, had separated and uh, and and prepared for landing. And on the 1st of December, it landed at uh, 11 past 3 UTC on Mons Rumka in the Oceanus Prosolarum, or the Ocean of Storms, 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 uh, which is up in the <laughs> northwest region of the moon's near side, of course. And uh, and the reason why it's going there is because the it's very, very young rock, and this is going to tell us a lot about the solar system. So it's actually very exciting. So it landed there mm. uh, and started drilling down. So it's drilled down and collected about two kilograms of moon rock from below two meters. So it's it's drilled two meters down, got stuff up from there, and then put it in the ascent vehicle. 
And then this ascent vehicle has taken off on the 3rd of December at 10 past three in the afternoon, UTC. And yeah. uh, six minutes later, got into orbit. Then it automatically rendezvoused and docked with the orbiter returner part of the spacecraft on December the 5th at quarter to 10 at night time. Then the samples taken off that, plopped in the return capsule. Then then the return capsule undocks from the ascender and off it goes back to Earth, which is what, what it's doing right now. So it's on its way back to Earth. So since the last podcast, it's landed, drilled down, loaded up its container, taken back off, got back into orbit, rendezvoused with the return craft, transferred its cargo, and then sent it back to Earth. Isn't that absolutely incredible? I've barely got the dishes washed. <laughs> I know. It's, Consider- <laughs> it's definitely... Oh, man, if I could go into how little I've achieved this week. I- I've-, I've-, I've been battling technical hell all week. <laughs> it's been horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's going to take four and a half days to get back to Earth. So... This week is going to end in the same way that uh, last week did. So yeah, it's it's going to, it's released the uh, re-entry capsule just before arrival, and then that will come in, and it should land in the Dorbod Banner, Inner Mongolia, on the sixteenth of December. So not long away at all, and uh, uh, and then that will be transferred to a facility. In somewhere in China, and ESA, of course, have actually been helping out with this. They they uh, they helped the Chinese space authorities to track it from their Karoo station in French Guiana, and will actually help track the landing phase using the Maspalarmos station in the Canary Islands. Mm, lovely part of the world. Absolutely beautiful. Um. And, yeah, and, absolutely. <laughs> and what's absolutely crazy, there was so much news last week that we didn't even mention Hayabusa 2 coming back. Hayabusa! Hayabusa 2! Hayabusa! Also, what used to be uh, the fastest production motorcycle in the world, for you petrol heads out there, the Suzuki Hayabusa. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it used to be the, was the. I think it was the first production motorbike that could go over two hundred miles an hour. I didn't realise that it was Japanese for Peregrine Falcon either. And uh, oh, yeah. I certainly didn't know that. Yeah, no, the Peregrine Falcon. What's of course, the two stand for? Because it's the second one. <laughs> it's the sequel of the first <laughs> Peregrine Falcon, which which had already returned samples in in two thousand and ten, but it wasn't very much. So it was a kind of partial success. Higher boost than the original Peregrine Falcon. Um, but yeah, peregrine mm. falcons, of course, when I was a kid, they were an endangered species in this country and they've, uh, they've prospered massively since then and uh, are now yeah. totally from the brink of extinction have come back. So, which is great news, but almost as great news as Hayabusa to the peregrine falcon returning to earth and delivering its cargo back to, um, Back to planet Earth. And actually, the pictures of the Japanese scientists picking this up in Woomera in Australia, Woomera in Australia, uh, picking it all up and, mm. uh, in, and carrying the little canister. And you think, oh, my God, that, that canister has been so far. The total distance that, that 
get this. The total distance that the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft had flown at that point is 3.26 billion miles. <laughs> and you think, oh, I've got to get in a car. Now the car's got to go to the airport. The airport's got to fly over to Japan. So it's not the end of its journey, but yeah. in terms of percentage-wise, it's pretty much done its entire journey. But yeah, 3.2 yeah. billion miles. So don't uh, don't buy a Suzuki Hayabusa with that kind of mileage on it. No, even with a careful owner. <laughs> even with a very careful owner, you'd be very stretched to find one. I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what's um, uh, my favourite thing about the Hayabusa too? Of course, is it used this kinetic penetrator, which was obviously another of Jamie's favourite things to uh, to actually shoot mm. the asteroid <laughs> and expose this pristine sample material. And it ejected rovers as well. So there was Rover 1A, the Hibu, and Rover 1B, the Owl, a Rover 2, which hmm. really should have been Rover 3, shouldn't it? But for some reason, it's 1A, 1B, and 2. You'd, say, you'd think so. And then the Germans also sent one called Mascot to the surface as well, which is uh, which was really cool. And the pictures that came back from those rovers are insane of an, you know, of an asteroid out in the middle of nowhere. And you get these beautiful pictures back. It's absolutely brilliant. Hayabusa really is an incredible space mission, and and get and here's the best bit, and this is the bit I didn't know, is that uh, the Hayabusa spacecraft has still got about half a tank of xenon propellant left, xenon propellant left, so it's it's going to fly on to yeah. some new targets. Uh, it's it's going to kind of do like these these missions that it's not entirely suited for, but it's yeah it's going to fly off to a different type of asteroid, and then it's going to go to another type of fast spinning asteroid, and and while it's doing those journeys, it's going to be observing exoplanets. What a hero of the space world! It's like I'm not done yet. I've got a bit left. I've got a bit left. I'm just going you to know. go on and <laughs> just going to keep going on and doing other cool things if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely awesome. Higher Booster 2. Well, which of course it's has Higher Booster 2 made it into the nominations. But uh before we get to the nominations. Ooh, we don't know. Well, no, we we got there's a couple of couple of things that I thought were worth mentioning. Apparently, Elon Musk was giving some was getting Drink. some award. Drink was getting some award, and he said that he was fairly confident that the first people will be landing on Mars in the next six years. Hmm. And he said that he was going hmm. to space in the next three. He is. <laughs> he well, is. fair enough. He, him, he is himself. Yeah, but he's gone, okay, so the thing that's probably not achievable is going to happen, but the thing that probably is achievable is too, and everybody goes, oh, he's going to space, and they all forget about the fact that he's just said that being on Mars in six years is probably not achievable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being on the moon in six years is a, is a tall ask. Being on Mars, yeah. wow. Uh, well, I mean... Let's see. Starship this week and the ridiculous belly flop manoeuvre. I mean, if that yeah. <laughs> if that really happens this week, and it's annoying that it didn't happen last week, I suppose, but we got a couple of other space SpaceX launches. They really are killing it, that has to be said. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, all, yeah, all, all bets, you know, all bets are off. You know, we might see, we might we actually might see Elon going crazy and sending people to Mars, even though obviously there's loads to iron out, like if we haven't, you know, got lab-grown bacon, what's the point? 
Just what the hell is the point? They need need something to be able to get their strength back up when they arrive, and they can't walk. I know. There's so (laughs) there's so many things. Although you know, there's some there's some great ideas out there in the internet about how to to put a bit of scaffolding in between a couple of starships and make them have artificial gravity as they sort of fly over to Mars. Yeah, there's some there's some cool little concepts however they all seem more than six years away but uh hey you know never know it <laughs> yeah. might uh, post in a post-covid world we might all go crazy and be absolutely epic you know it might turn out to be a i really hope so, i really Matthew. hope so I, this is my vision from 2021 onwards everyone we're all going to live in harmony we're all going to help each other nations across the world will will abandon nationalism and and think about and just think about furthering human creativity and and it'll be just like Star Trek. <laughs> That's yeah. what I hope. I'm with you, Matt. That's what I want. I'd like to see that as well. Yeah. I think I'm going to make that my uh, New Year's wish. Yeah, I am me. That's what I'm going to go for. Um, in the meantime, quite close to home, we've got uh, clothing empire billionaires Anderson and Holsch, Pulvson, uh, of the Wildland Limited. Gosh. Have invested a one and a half million pounds in the Shetland spaceport, and it looks like that's a kind of um, move to uh, put the kibosh on the Sutherland one in the Scottish Highlands to protect the Sutherland uh, wetlands and the delicate eco balance up in the Scottish Highlands. So they're sticking it out in Shetland, which is obviously less of a worry environmentally, but it's a little bit, I suppose, yeah, I I can't quite see the reasoning a lot there. It's more like, I don't know. I don't know. But it's it's interesting. It's an interesting move. You've got to keep an eye on that Scottish spaceport thing. Uh, I can't imagine. And is that because the the clothing guys are very much about uh, conservationism, or are they interested in space? I think it's a bit of both. So they're they're interested. Okay. They're they're just billionaires, basically. So you know, one and a half million pounds yeah. isn't that much money. It's like you and me putting twenty quid in, isn't it? Really? <laughs> oh wait, whoa, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. <laughs> no, actually, slow down there. I'll put a five in. It. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, it's noticeable how much your your Scouse accent went up there. The uh... <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I've got some nominations for the uh, Space Awards, and and as promised, yes. and as promised, I've got a jingle. Amazing! I can't wait to hear it. Well, yeah, they're, they're, it's just been and gone. The listeners will have just heard it. So uh, do you want to hear my nominations for the uh, Space Awards? Best Space Event are The Starship Hops, Number 2, Crew Demo 2 and Crew 1. The SpaceX ISS crewed launches this year. Number 3, Changi 5 landing on the moon. Number 4... <sighs> Osiris Rex landing on an asteroid with its scrapey manoeuvre. And 
last but not least, well, I don't know, it might it might come in last, but um, one that I got very excited about was Comet Neowise being so visible in the night sky. Best space legend. Ah, number one, Victor Glover for just being bloody cool. <laughs> Christina Koch for spending 328 days in space. Gone but not forgotten, Al Warden. Andrea Getz for winning the Nobel Prize for Black Holes. And, of course, Elon Musk. Musk. Drink! What have we got next? What have we got next? Best rocket. I, th- I think this might end up being a two-horse race at best. So, best rocket. <laughs> Falcon 9. Electron. Soyuz. Long March 5. Ariane 5 Best bit of science Phosphine in Venus's clouds Finding an FRB in our own galaxy that is probably a magnetar Finally observing the CNO cycle in the sun Hayabusa's sample return Last but not least Virgo and LIGO spotting a black hole in the mass gap and those are the categories and nominations for the 2020 interplanetary podcast awards and we can see across the room there's a lot of excitement for some of those nominations so we're going to be very interested to see the outcome well, of these awards i wonder by the time it get uh, well, obviously jamie is up for reading these by the way <laughs> i've spoke to jamie yes. and actually jamie and i have got an Brilliant. awesome guest coming up that we're doing together so that will be just before the end of the end mega. of the year, and it is a mega guest as well. But you'll have to wait to find out who it is. But hopefully, we'll be able to get hold of representatives of our winners and and give them the uh, the special prize. I might send them an interplanetary yeah, man, podcast amazing. mug. Imagine how how yes. proud Elon <laughs> Musk will be with it <laughs> if he wins best space legend <laughs> and he gets my mug. <laughs> oh, so the goal is that him actually drinking from it in space in three years' time. Ah, uh, do, do you know what? I would have left off Al Warden. I'd, I hadn't forgotten, but I think that's a great shout. And that came in, but from Law Loving uh, from Tennessee, who's a fan of the podcast, and put Al Warden in there. Oh. Also put Demo One because Doug Hurley graduated from his alma mater. Tulane University or Tulane University. Nice. So how cool is that? So uh, thanks very much for the nominations, everyone. And let's get on to this um, space elevator chitter chatter. Oh, oh, by the way, but before we do, actually, I should say, I should say, I I will put up a proper poll on the website for you to go to, to uh, start voting. Voting starts now and uh, will be read out the winner on the last podcast of the year by Mr. Jamie Franklin himself. Excellent. Without further ado, here is Dr. Peter Swan, Mr. Space Elevator. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Matthew. And I, I really do appreciate your opportunity to talk to your audience. I'm looking forward to your special people that gather who are interested in our future off-planet movements. 
I'm interested in going with them to the moon and bars. Now, at the present time, it's with our imagination. But with Mr. Musk and Mr. Bezos on it, maybe in the near future, we can look over the hill. Mr. Musk's trip to the moon uh, called the Dear Moon with the Japanese billionaire is supposed to happen in two years, two and a half years. This is just an indicator of our movement off planet, which is going to be really revolutionary in a bright spot in our future. It really is going to be interesting. As to the long-term uh, activities, I have been a member of the British Interplanetary Society since 1983. My wife was also a, a fellow at the time, and we joined it for one simple reason, which is the information flow and the, the information database at the BIS has always been excellent. And if you wanted to answer a question about foreign, now this is other than American, of course, from my view, if you wanted to look and try to figure out uh, an international activity in space, the BIS had it covered. So they covered the Russians, they covered the Chinese, they covered the Japanese, they covered everything. And I was a space professional, but in America, we kind of kept our head down and just did our thing. But to really get a feel for the international, BIS was excellent. So, you know, their reputation is, is great and they have open minds and their scientific inquiry into the future has always been intriguing. Their designs of interplanetary and interstellar uh, spaceships with people have really tweaked my interest and I've always paid attention to them. I haven't participated from a distance, but I, I've really enjoyed what they did. In addition, Kathy and I have found that uh, we have fond memories of Brighton, Glasgow, and of course the yearly support the BIS gives to the International Astronautical Congresses around the world. In fact, a curiosity just to tie the BIS and the International Space Elevator Consortium is, when we created ISIC, I used the BIS structure as our model member-based, uh, fees for membership, and then you provide services to them. And that's what we try to do at ISIC. We try to have a body of knowledge. And at the present time, we have 12 study reports, year-long studies that we did, study reports, each of which is free and PDF download from www.isic, that'd be isec.org. That was a blatant advertisement, okay, Matthew? <laughs> anyway. That's we, all good. We to, yeah. We tried to model our society after the BIS because of the great uh, services that it had done for me for 40 years. And so I think we're just like a baby brother for the uh, BIS. We have a great uh, body of knowledge now. We've been working it for like uh, 18 years from Dr. Edwards when he published his original work. But we have a tremendous amount of citations, over 800 citations. So if somebody wants to do research into space elevators, if they go to our website and look at our citations, they can get almost any topic covered in space elevators by multiple people, and they can pursue their area of study very easily. Okay, today I thought I would discuss a few items and then open it up for conversation. And uh, you can give me some questions or we'll invent some. But I work best as an interactive professor versus a lecture type. Mm -hmm. uh, but first things first, 
there have been tremendous progress, or has been tremendous progress in the last two years. We feel in the space elevator community that we have jump-started, you know, we've stimulated, we've, we've started the actual development program of the space elevator. We can build a space elevator today. Now, it turns out that, uh, just a second, I had a little, little uh, dude on the, on the screen. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it turns out that we uh, have come up with some conclusions based on research that has been conclu concluded in the last two years. And we've come to these conclusions and realized that we can actually start a program for space elevators. Okay, now why can we say that? Let me first start with a quick summary of my background. It'll take about 30 seconds. I've been building spacecraft for 52 years. I tested spacecraft. I watched launches of spacecraft. Then I actually helped build a constellation called Iridium. I was responsible for the spacecraft bus. So we did 92. We launched 92 of those. And then after all of that, I taught how to build spacecraft for 25 years. So basically, I've been in the space world building spacecraft. And with that reputation, I say we can build a space elevator today. And that's only in the last two years. Why is that in the last two years? Aha. The big aha moment. We have a new material that's sitting actually closer to you guys than it is to me. It's at the University of Manchester. They've got a graphene innovative engineering center, or it's graphene engineering innovation center. I don't know which one it is. <laughs> anyway, the Geik. They have a tremendous activity uh, developing the concept and the hard uh, the material for a thing called single crystal graphene. Literally, it's carbon atom to carbon atom in one flat plane. So they call it a two-dimensional material. This is a whole new category of materials. Brand new. Has, you know, last 10 years or so, they've been talking about two-dimensional. And so it's one atom thick, half meter long, tenth of a meter wide, one molecule. And they've actually shown that in China first, and then uh, they've been developing around some places in the U.S., uh, but in your locale, it's the University of Manchester, and they're doing a very good job. There's a gentleman there named Adrian Nixon, who is the editor for the uh, Graphene Journal, and it turns out that he claims that he can make a 100,000-kilometer, one-atom-thick sheet by grabbing the material at one end and pulling it out of a furnace, putting methane in the other end and all the little hydrogen atoms go away and the carbon atoms stay and they all combine. So you have a continuous sheet. Now, that's a bold claim. He hasn't done that. <laughs> but the idea is that first you need visionaries and then you need people with dreams and then you need people to invest in facilities and, and manufacturing sites that's where we are today. The investment is going into the University of Manchester, and they're going to have facilities to develop two-dimensional materials. Now, being specific to make sure everybody understands, we believe the single crystal graphene will probably be the material for the space elevator. But there's also white graphene. That's a term for hexagon boron nitride. And then that's done in the same process, carbon atoms 
and I mean, boron atoms and nitride atoms combining in one dimension, and then you pull it out of the furnace. Now, it turns out they have done graphene up to lengths at one meter per uh, minute. So they've actually pulled graphene out. And they've tested graphene in excess of 150 gigapascals. It turns out that's really, 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 really strong, like, you know, <laughs> a thousand times stronger than steel or something. But anyway, it's yeah. really strong. Now, uh, I hasten to say they have not had that strength in the material they pulled out of the furnace. This is very early on in the process. So they're working on all those different techniques so they could have it long enough and strong enough. But our community in the space elevator community believes that we have multiple materials that can be used for the space elevator tether. So it's not tomorrow. It'll probably be 10 years before the tether would be ready. There's, I mean, it's not just around the corner, but we're very, very encouraged. So we believe we should start working on tethered climbers, the earth port, the apex anchor, all the different components of a space elevator architecture, and then let the materials catch up with us. And that's probably the biggest thing that's happened in the last two years. So it's really, really exciting inside our little community. Uh, the next set of research that was really awesome, that just blew me away. I mean, it was obvious to the casual observer, but I missed it. They did, uh, Arizona State University, a professor, Pete, and his uh, students who st were studying orbits, uh, did a, about two years of study on how space elevators would make travel to Mars revolutionary. So the concept is you get to the top of a space elevator 100,000 kilometers up. We'll define what a space elevator is later, but it's a 100,000 kilometer rope straight up. Okay, when you rotate that with the Earth, like it's a rock above your head and you're rotating it around and this centrifugal force outward and it keeps it taut. When you rotate with the Earth at 100,000 kilometer altitude, you're going 7.76 kilometers per second. That's three times the escape velocity of rockets propelled uh, uh, spacecraft. So we showed that you could get to Mars in 61 days. Right now, the ones that left this last summer, three adventures by three different countries, they were going to Mars and are going to Mars, and it's going to take them seven and a half to eight months to get there. And by the way, that's fast transit. Normally, it's uh, eight, nine months, but this year, it lined up very nicely. So we can launch and get there in 61 days. Well, that's a few times in the cycle when the planets are doing their dance. But the other thing they recognize is we can release every day of the year. There is no wait for 26 months for a window to show up. We can climb the elevator and release every day. And what happens is the trip is a different route and it takes different time. Some of them might take 400 days. Okay, we agree. But if you're supplying a colony and you want to send hammer and nails, you don't care if it takes 400 days. You just send it 400 days before you need it. If you want pizza, you'd want to send it though, in 61 days. You wouldn't want it to be late. So the point is you can release every day and the trip to 
to Mars is variable in time, but it's, it's just physics, you know, it's just orbits. The other thing that they showed, which was remarkable, was if you set up a mature space elevator uh, architecture, and I'm gonna talk about that in a few minutes, you can do 170,000 tons to geo and beyond per year. Now to put that in perspective, being gracious and doing big numbers, 100 launches a year is all we normally do, and it's about 10 tons per launch. That's being gracious, but anyway, it's a good number. It comes out 1,000. <laughs> okay, so if you said that Earth's history has done about 1,000 tons per year, okay, we would do in our first mature year like, you know, 10 times what they've done ever, forever. I mean, it's just really remarkable. So what we're talking about is a remarkable capability to move mass. And if you're going interplanetary, you can go fast and you can depart every day. Now, I'm going to short circuit. I was going to say something later, but I think it's timely now. One of the recognitions we came up with in this Arizona State University research is we can offer to the planetary scientists, okay, all you planetary scientists out there, listen to this, any mass to any planet any day. Now, if you think about that a little bit, if you just take the ones that went to Mars this last summer, they're less than 1% of the mass that was at the pad. They had to wait 26 months, and it takes them seven and a half to eight months to get there. So this is revolutionary. The planetary scientists can have any size instrument they want to any planet, any, and we can release them every day. Now, the trip times vary depending on where the planet, planetary dances are, but we don't have to wait for you know 20 years to go to Pluto again or something like that. It's just a, re, a remarkable capability because you're going at 7.76 kilometers per second, and the rotation of the Earth will provide an insertion vector into transitory elliptical orbits to the different planets. So it really is an interesting place that we're at. Okay, so all these surprising things that have happened in the last two to three years have led us to a new vision. We really believe that the space elevators are the green road to space, and they enable humanity's most important missions by moving massive tonnage to geo and beyond. We no longer believe that our only advantage is inexpensive. Our advantage is now movement of mass to where humanity wants missions. That's the advantage we have today. And of course, any permanent infrastructure put up in a transportation sense is gonna be cheaper than uh, individual events. So we will be cheaper, but I don't wanna go into that argument. I'm gonna just explain that we can do 170,000 tons to geo and beyond per year, which blows everybody else away. Okay. Some of the topics we can talk about over the next little while is we can talk about our current beliefs, you know, what conclusions have we come to. We'll give a quick summary of what a space elevator is and we'll talk about its strengths. We'll look at the developmental position, where we are. We'll go into each of the segments and we'll talk about the different segments and stuff like that. And then we'll talk about what we see as a strategy, which is a 
dual space access architecture. Now, this is a simple terminology. We want to leverage the strengths of rockets, and we want to leverage the strengths of a permanent infrastructure called space elevators. Now, rockets are beautiful. Listen, I'm a rocket scientist. I used to love going to the site and launching my satellites and stuff like that. Rockets are marvelous. They have some downfalls, but they really do a good job. They get people through radiation belts rapidly, like the Apollo guys. They can go to any orbit uh, anytime they want, and they can move mass to any place they want. So rockets are really remarkable. But so are space elevators. So let's leverage both of them instead of just staying with one. So then there's a terminology called demand pull. We have a lot of dreamers out there. And I love those. The BIS is right up there with the rest of us. Uh, BIS says we're going intergalactic. Oh, man, oh, man, do we have to have a big, new, fancy engine to do that? But then we have to be able to put people into something and have them. And we got to have air and fuel. And we believe you ought to really build the intergalactic at the apex anchor and, and uh, just build it up there. And you can raise all the mass off the surface without any problems and stuff like that. So there's some neat opportunities that uh, space elevators will give us. And then we'll face up to our problem. Oh, I hate this problem. Anyway. It turns out the young Mr. Tiakowski, way back in the 1800s, 1898 or something, came up with a rocket equation. Bummer, dude. <laughs> anyway, if you look at his rocket equation, you can only get 4% of the mass on the pad to low Earth orbit and 2% to geo, send it to geo the moon or Mars. Now, to get it to the surface of the moon, you get only one half of 1% of the mass that's on the pad to the surface of the moon. And we showed that in Apollo. We can show you the numbers. And nothing has changed between then and now in the rocket equation and the efficiency of our rockets. Now, we can use ion engines to go real slow and stuff like that. That puts a little perturbation to it. But it certainly does not change the equation of getting out of the gravity well to low Earth orbit. That's 4% of the mass on the pad. And so the rocket equation is really a bummer. So what we say in space elevators is we're avoiding the rocket equation. We're skipping that whole arena. We're just raising our tether climbers with electricity on a train track. And it's relatively straightforward. Okay, so that's what we're really looking at. And uh, if you have any quick questions or anything, Matthew, we can do it now. Uh, Otherwise, well, I, talk. I, well, I'm, I'm always struck by the irony that Salkovsky came up with the space elevator as well as coming up with the rocket equation, right? Yeah, that is fascinating. <laughs> I've never put that together before, but that is, it's, it's, you're it's, perfectly correct. I think it's obvious that the space elevator is something that we would all love to have because like you said, the rocket equation is is nothing short of really annoying. I've actually got it written above my <laughs> written above my computer screen. Yeah. I, <laughs> but it's uh, it's, kind of <laughs> it's 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 mad and and it means yeah you know I I always use it as the explanation about why we haven't gone back to the moon for so long. You know when people say ah oh, it's obviously a fake because we haven't been back and it, why haven't we been back if it was easy to do it? It's like it was never easy. Trust me, <laughs> it was crazy. So the, the first things that come to my mind when we went talking about space elevators is obviously there was a, a, a big 
a renaissance of space elevators, maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago when carbon nanotubes and things started to appear. And yes. It, how how is this time? Because um, because it, it, it then it turned out when you really did the maths on carbon nanotubes that you'd actually have to have perfect carbon nanotubes to to sustain the length of the cable and the and the strains on it. So how is how is graphene different? Is it is it really that much? Is it really that bigger uh, a paradigm shift from where we were with carbon nanotubes? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Uh, carbon nanotubes have always been a tremendous uh material and but the problem is they they hypothesized that they could do them in a linear manner and it turns out that they grow linearly but you know uh, micro whatever lengths and they have not been able to do them sequentially in a in a reasonable manner so we had an expectation for space elevators material with carbon nanotubes. They've not lived up to their hopes. The difference is the discovery of single crystal graphene and the other two-dimensional uh, materials is that they've actually tested them. They have a piece of material in multiple locations that's a half a meter long, tenth of a meter wide, one atom thick, and they've tested it to over 150 gigapascals tensile strength. And then they've done all the other tests, you know, looking for defects and seeing if it's perfect and all that kind of stuff. And the answer is it's almost a perfect sheet of atoms. And so we actually have a half meter, and there's major uh, investments in the tunes of half a billion dollars and billion dollars in these universities and uh, production areas to go from the laboratory half meter length to much longer than that. Now, it turns out the space, I mean, these uh, single crystal graphene and these other two dimensional materials have characteristics that are similar to carbon uh, nanotubes in that the, the Single crystal graphene is a perfect conductor. And and the reason is, and it goes into physics, and I'm certainly not an expert in chemistry or physics, but it was explained to me that the carbon atoms have joined hip to to shoulder in little um, uh, uh, five pentagon type things. And then the electrons for each molecule are on the top and the bottom. So the atoms are connecting directly and the electrons are on the top and bottom. And so the flow of electrons for electricity is almost with no no, uh, resistance at all. So the material is, is, you know, they always say a miracle material, will have so many uses uh, that it's a lot of people investing in it. But the difference is you can make a long length of, this two-dimensional material. And they've shown it in the uh, films that you can look at where they actually have the flow of the material at a meter per uh, second or a meter per minute or something, yeah, a meter per minute. And they actually are pulling this out. Now, they're not using a rigorous manner so that they get the perfect material. They're just showing that the can be pulled out. So there's a lot more to work. And we don't have 
We don't have a material rolled up that's 100,000 kilometers long now, so we can't do that. But I would expect in three to five years, we'll have a, you know, a kilometer long material we could test hanging down from a bridge uh, or something like that. I, I don't think it's more than three years away to have a good segment of the material to test. And then, of course, we have all kinds of questions like, instead of a single atom thick, how many layers do you need? And we've got people working on that. And the, the current estimate is between 1,000 and 10,000. And I, I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> literally, I have no flipping clue on what that means. But there, the, the point is the experts are working on it and have great expectations for the material in long lengths and strong enough. That's the difference. In the old days, they just said, we hope to get carbon nanotubes in long lengths. They never showed it in the lab. And it's been 18 years since the space elevator community is tied on to carbon nanotubes. And it's been very, very disappointing. We've done a lot of work to develop the everything else around the space elevator. And that's why we're so advanced today. We understand uh, earth ports. We under, we've got a nice design for an earth port. We've got uh, tethered climbers pretty well laid out. I mean, I've built hundreds of satellites, and a tethered climber is no more than a satellite with wheels on it. And uh, so there, you know, some issues there. But we've had wheels in space before, so that's it's not not new. It's just, of course, it's a design challenge. Actually, I mean, that's yeah. a, that's a good place to actually to go from is yeah. What what? How many sort of key technologies does a space elevator have? And where are we with each of these, each of these pieces? Presumably, the cable itself is the hardest bit, but presumably, there's other components of it that are almost approaching as hard because it's such a a vast engineering complex. No, well, okay, I'll I'll beg to differ a little bit. The, the tether <laughs> material. A difficult thing. There's no doubt about that. And we, we really see an incremental uh, process there, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, three to five years, we'll have a long material ready to test. Ten years, we'll have a production facility that we can actually have material. That type of thing. Maybe it's 20 years. Maybe we're dreaming that it'll be in 15 years, we'll have a space elevator. Maybe it's longer than that. We, we don't know. This is, you know, we're on the edge of a new technology. But Let's go to the other place. All the rest of the technologies in the space elevator. First off, we've got to recognize that the International Academy of Astronautics has done two major studies with 40 space experts on each study. And they've, they've come together and analyzed it. The first one was written up and published in 2014. And the answer in 2014 was space elevators seem feasible. They couldn't say is feasible because they didn't have a material, but they did say it seems feasible. The published document uh, called the, let's see, it's right here. That's the name of it. The Road to the Space Elevator Era, done by the International Academy of Astronautics, published in 2019. It says that we have assessed all the technologies of a space elevator and we're ready to go to uh, production developmental program. It has 
listed every segment of the space elevator tether climber and looked at all the technologies in a tether climber and checked them off saying these have been done in space and uh then they looked at you know the apex anchor now the apex anchor is no more than a spacecraft at the top of the string that is trying to damp out any motion that we don't want in a space elevator now Space elevators are extremely steady, will not go unstable. They will always stay vertical, but that might not be what you want in operation. So you want to control the dynamics. So if you put a little tether uh, satellite at the end with little thrusters, you can damp out the uh, motion, just like a piano wire can be damped out by touching it. So uh, we have looked at all the technologies and the International Space Elevator, I mean, the International Academy of Astronautics says that the space elevator technologies are all there. Now, it was published in 2019, and it writes about single crystal graphene, but it's 18 months old. And so it's not up to speed to where we are today with respect to space elevator tether material. But it says in this book that it looks really, really, really promising and should be the material of choice in the future. It, it couldn't say that in the, you know February of, of 19. But now we can say with the latest development of the half meter piece, it, and these, these developments have been at multiple locations, not just in China. Uh, so, so there's great progress on the material. But in addition, we have assessed all the components of the space elevator and looked at it. In addition, at the International Space Elevator Consortium, you can download some of our uh, study reports, one of which is the architecture and roadmaps. And in there, we identify 34 demonstrations that we wanna do, technological demonstrations of the different segments. So let's take the uh, tether climber. One of the demonstrations would be a tether uh, hanging vertically, say a, a kilometer from a bridge, and then take the wheels and the engineering uh, 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 development of a motor and stuff like that, and run the wheels up the material. And so that would be a demonstration. It's identified in the book about one of the demonstrations that would be required. And we showed 30 for demonstrations, test demonstrations, that would be significant in the progress of space elevator de design. And so we've assessed all the components, all the segments of space elevators, and we see no real showstoppers. Uh, the only thing that's slowing us down is the material isn't ready today. We're hoping it's gonna be ready in 10 years, but it might be 20 years, who knows? Well, okay. So <laughs> now the one that obviously comes up a lot and after reading uh, Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, I, was the, um, <laughs> the, the bit that stays in my mind is the collapse of their space elevator and the, and the kind of destruction that it has across, across the planet. So in terms of the, the actual safety aspect of such a large piece of infrastructure, what, where, where are you at with that? Um, everybody who does infrastructure understands that there is danger in the sense of uh, catastrophe. 
Okay, build a bridge, build a high building, whatever you do, there's always a danger. We believe it's very, very small. We have done assessments on all the different components and all the different aspects. The one that is obvious is the space debris threat. Uh, we did a study. Well, first off, let me explain. I'm not a current space debris expert working in the field. But when I was uh, 30 years old, I tracked space debris. I was inside what's now the Space Force, uh, tracking satellites and tracking space debris, predicting the reentry and predicting all that. Uh, so that was my introduction to the density of space items up there. And then when I was working with Iridium in the commercial side of spacecraft development, we had an effort led by a guy named Skip Penny that had two purposes. One, look at space debris and see what the issues are. And two, ensure that the uh, Iridium constellation was space debris uh, cognizant, uh, a, good, a good neighbor for space debris. In fact, we've deorbited de uh, de most of our first generation, which is unusual for space people. Most space people don't go and deorbit their stuff. We actually took our stuff out of orbit. So that's part of our debris, being good debris citizens that uh, Motorola had when we were creating the constellation. So I've been involved with debris for many, many years. Okay, that's background. In 2010, of course, this issue of space debris and space elevators was uh, just as current as it is now. So we did a study, and it's on our, on our website, 2010, called Space Debris Mitigation. And then we updated it in 2020. So we have a new study report in 2020 that looks at the space debris threat as of now. I'll quickly define what we did. The first thing we did is get from NASA all the information we could. They provided us numbers in orbit of controlled satellites that you could move, uh, uncontrolled bodies that are still active, and anything over 10, 10 centimeters. So that would be the debris that you could track. And then they estimated stuff that was smaller than 10 centimeters. So we've got the numbers, small stuff, uncontrolled stuff, and controlled stuff. Then we did a density versus altitude breakout of everything. And then we placed a one meter tether across segments. So we did 60 kilometer segments from, I think it was 180 kilometers up to 2000. And so we looked at the density all the way up. Of course, around 800's the most and uh, 1400's a lot. So, so we you know, did all the numbers all the way up and down, but we did it by segment, segment, 60 kilometer segments, and did the density in those areas versus the width of our tether and did a probability of impact. And the bottom line is space debris and space elevators is a management problem, not an engineering problem. Now, it turns out that of course, of course, we're gonna deal with space debris in a serious manner and we'll design the tether so that it can take small hits. So any of those little things that hit it, we we'll just let them blow through and cut one or two strands, and then the stress, of, the tensile strength, stress will be spread around on the others. We can design our tether to do that. 
the things that are greater than 10 uh, centimeters across, then we are tracking those and we'll set up so we could actually predict where there would be maybe a conjunction and then we can actually move the tether. And there are 42,000 ways to move the tether, one of which is move the base stations and the earth port will be uh, on the ocean and, and movable. Or we could uh, do the same thing at the apex anchor. Motion up there will change it. In addition, stopping a tether climber, any one of the seven below the geo, or speeding it up or slowing it down will all affect the motion of the tether. And so we're developing a tether simulation today to show how that would be done. So we believe that we can move our tether out of the way of anything larger than 10 centimeters or something like that. Now, I hasten to say that we are in 2020 today, by the time we get operational, say in 2035, we're really, really hoping that it's not necessary, okay? It's not, not, we're not saying we need it, but it's a hope that the space community will get its stuff together and do more than one contract for one satellite uh, removal, which is, which is just this last week or so, mm. Europe signed up for removing one big piece. And I think that's marvelous and I applaud them and I've been wondering why we haven't done it in the past. But I believe that we need to remove the big bodies out of space, all the rocket bodies and stuff like that. And I believe it will be initiated and much of that will be done by the time we get there. But we're not depending on that. That would just be nice. It'd be less movement of our tether. Uh, okay, so we have the strategy for this activity. Then what we did is in 2020, we said, aha, NASA published new density numbers for 2019. Oh, and then they did something which surprised the heck out of me. They projected the density numbers for 2030. They said, we're going to have a constellation from Mr. Musk. We're going to have a constellation from OneWeb. Now that I guess that's British government owned, but anyway. <laughs> owned by me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you're paying for it. Okay. And uh, so we're going to have some constellations up there. And so that'll increase the density in space. So NASA very nicely gave us the estimate of what the density would be like in 2030. So we ran the same computer simulations for 20. Uh, 10, 2019, and 2030, and the answer comes out the same. It's a management problem, not an engineering problem. And, a, and of course, it's a design thing. We want to design the tether to be correct, to be you know accepting of small hits and movable and big hits and stuff like that. So there are all those things. In addition, on the on the negative side, if you want to take a look at it. Uh, Professor Paul Williams in Australia, and I apologize, I don't really know which university he's from. It's been 10 years or so. <laughs> uh, he, he did a study for us in the International Academy of Astronautics book, and he predicted if it was cut here, what would happen? And he did like 150 cases and then did the simulation to show it falling down and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the, the bottom line is if it cuts you know, significant distance up, then, you know, the space elevator bridge falls into the water and you you really can't recover too much. The upper portion is going to leave into a big elliptical orbit around the Earth, and we would just roll it up, you know, 
tell our uh, reel up there to roll it up and it would be someplace up there. The bottom would come down. Now it turns out that the tether material is so light, it would kind of like just float down in the atmosphere. Uh, let's say it's cut at 10,000 kilometers up. Uh, it turns out that it would go directly to the uh, east from our uh, point in the middle of the Pacific and it probably wouldn't even get to South America. Uh, it would be in the ocean most of the time, probably put a little tether across the Galapagos or something like that. But it would be bad, bad juju. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> and uh, we, we as engineers and builders and architecture take that responsibility seriously to look at it and try to make sure that it doesn't happen. The most probable cut would be at 800 or 1400 kilometers where the density of the space debris is. That would be the most probable. We have methods that deal with that. The simple one that we believe will be part of the architecture. Now, this hasn't been finalized, but probably will be. Is at 2,000 kilometers, we come down with six tethers. Instead of just coming down with one, we come down with six. Now, of course, one is a principle that we go up and down on. And the other five, we can find uses for, like, you know, scientists would really like to have sensors all the way up and down on tethers and, and uh, take all the data. But the point is we would have additional tethers that would hold the space elevator in place if the most probable cut would occur. Now, we, we're not claiming that it's going to occur. We're just saying that the probabilities are more than infinitesimal uh, at 800 and 1400 where the density is greater and it could happen uh we don't plan for it to happen we're, we're planning our engineering architecture our engineering design and our management operations are planning to have methodologies that that uh, defeat the threat of space debris now it's an architecture just like a bridge and we've got to really be serious, like all architects and de designers are. We've got to be serious about all threats. And, of course, that's the one everybody loves to talk about. But if you want to really look into it, go to our site, isig.org, and download those two reports. And they, they have most of the answer about debris. In which case, I suppose it, 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 it's how do you change the, the community's mind? Because I've heard... You know, it's it's not like I'm the only skeptic out there, and and it, you know, often my opinions <laughs> swayed in the wind by by whoever's the most persuasive um, uh, science communicator at the time. But I remember that there was a uh, other than the yeah the 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 attack from debris and the and the risk of of, of failure. The other one was the the other sort of complaint was that. If Elon Musk is right about his Starship and and the reusability of it, that actually that actually starts to be a cheaper option. Uh, but after hearing yeah, okay. you talking, yeah. I'm I'm kind of thinking that 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 doesn't seem right anymore. But but okay, I I think I have an answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. Let's take it to the next level up. Okay, what does humanity want to do? Humanity wants to move off planet. 
And we've got a lot of people going there. We've got the UK just signed with the Artemis. Uh, we've got a bunch of other countries signed up with NASA. The ESA said they're going to go with NASA to the moon. The Chinese have announced they're going to put people on the moon. Uh, India is talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. Russians are talking about it. We are going to the moon. Now, don't pin me down on time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I've waited 50 years since the last one. Anyway, uh, we are going to the moon. And uh, Elon Musk is going to lead, lead with his Japanese billionaire going around the moon. But we have, you know, a tremendous effort across the globe to go back to the moon and go on to Mars. So if we take a look at who's driving that, we can look at NASA's vision. And NASA's vision is we're going to put female boots on the moon. That's their stated objective. And so if you really think about that a little bit, the diversity aspects of the whole moon mission and everything else, we are going back to the moon. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, okay, this is a personal opinion. Ain't no way we're going to make 2024. Okay, yeah. uh, I've, I've been there before. And it's hard. <laughs> I don't think space, uh, I don't think we've ever <laughs> yeah, suggested that space, we would. <laughs> at this space end. projects very rarely make schedules. Anyway, but the point is not that 2024 we make it. The point is we go back, and whether it's 2024, 2026, 2028, irrelevant in my mind. The point is we are going. So the vision of NASA is women and men on the moon, and uh, Europe's going with us, and Japan's going with us, and Canada says we're going to provide the Canadian arm wherever you go. And so, you know, we're really talking about an international activity. If you talk to Jeff Bezos, and I'm quoting him, he says, I'm going to build the road to space for the next generation. And his objective is millions of people living off planet in a productive manner. He likes the old L5 colony thing, which is a whole nother arena. I love that. And, and we talk about Elon Musk. Now, he has stated multiple times he needs a million tons on Mars. Remember that number. I've talked with the space uh, solar power guys, John Mankins, and it's extremely important that our world do space solar power. That's Pete Swan's view. He stated that he can stop global warming by eliminating coal plants. He said he can do hundreds of coal plants, eliminate them. If we can do that, we can stop global warming. So we need space solar power. Oops, oops. He also told me at the IAC last year that he needs 5 million tons in geo. Wait a minute now. 5 million to geo, 1 million to Mars. Take any rocket you want, Starship, okay? He can, he can get 21 tons to geo and 100 tons to Mars. Well, wait a minute, though. That 100 tons to Mars takes five launches to get 100 tons to Mars. Five launches, okay? Refuel, resupply, all that kind of stuff in LEO, and then they go. So my point is, we have a vision. I read that out to you earlier. We want to help humanity fulfill its needs by moving massive tonnage to geo and beyond. That's our statement. We need a dual space architecture. 
Rockets will take people and go fast through radiation. They'll go to any orbit. They'll go in a time. By the way, they go for the next 15 years while we're not there. So they will establish the geosynchronous prototypes, maybe even the first development or second development satellite. They will establish a colony on the moon. They will establish a colony on Mars by using rockets. But please don't ask them to supply 5 million tons to the geosynchronous altitude. It's just devastating on the atmosphere. So we are the green road to space. We're having a report done right now. We'll be, it'll be out in March. And it's looking at the green aspects of space elevators. We enable space solar power. We enable, now this one pushes the envelope, but we really believe it can be done. We can take all the high level nuclear waste and throw it to the sun. Okay, no rockets, no worry about exploding, all that kind of stuff. So it's a tremendous concept. There are other concepts that would be environmentally positive that require a lot of mass that can't be done with rockets today. So we're, we're a green enabler of missions. And when we lift off, we do it with electricity. So all that 170,000 tons to geo per year is done with electricity, not burning and consuming fuel in the atmosphere. So we want people to start recognizing that there ought to be a dual space access. The architecture ought to include the strengths of rockets and the strengths of space elevators. And with those two things combined, we can fulfill our dreams that we have, the visions that we have. We can move off planet. If we depend on rockets, it's going to be woefully short of what we need. So uh, is there going to be a bit of an international race on space elevators? And if so, how many sort of positions on Earth are safe to actually have them? Well, we, we talked about cables falling into the sea and things like that. So, you know, could China, for example, steal the march on 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 the US or I don't the Europeans China, will, but. <laughs> okay okay let's talk about that first China's already announced they're going to have a space elevator in 2045 right they've already said that <laughs> along with a reusable big rocket like New Glenn they're they've already stated they're going to build a space elevator uh Japan has a need for space elevator Japan needs space solar power they don't have any in, in, in they don't have any coal and and uh, oil in their country so everything's imported they they don't like nuclear anymore and so they have a real energy crisis and they believe space solar power will do it so they have actually designed a space elevator the obiashi corporation produced a design in 2014 and said here's what we would do now, the unique aspect of their design, which we don't talk about too often, is their design is for 100 metric tons per trip. We started with 14. We were not being too aggressive. They went straight to 100 metric tons. And you ask yourself, why would you go to the big one straight off? And the answer is they don't want 14 per trip. They want 100 because they want to do solar power. So that's my projection. That's my guess, Pete Swan's guess. I don't know that for a fact. I'm putting the facts that Japan needs space solar power. By the way, they're big time in space solar power engineering and thinking in the university and research and all that. 
in addition, they're big time in space tethers and stuff like that. And now the Obayashi Corporation had designed a space elevator for a hundred metric tons. So we really have a recognition that Japan's going, China's going, and it would not surprise me if, now this is Pete Swan's guess, India decides to go. India is a space nation. They have tremendous capabilities. They would see a space elevator development as a leapfrog to take their nation to leadership. Okay, the UAE is now jumping into space. Once again, they could jump into the space elevator and become the world, uh, I'm sorry, the solar system leader <laughs> in, in uh, space. So so there's there's a lot of potential out there for being a, a space race and space elevators. And we don't really know where that is because people are keeping that kind of quiet. Now, you had a second part to that question. What was the second well, part? Well, the second part was, yeah, if, if you've got all these people, because <laughs> presumably oh, you, the moment you yeah. start building yeah. them, presumably everyone goes, crikey, it, it's doable. Yeah, and, and yeah, okay. That, how many that's can true. you have? Uh, but <laughs> it turns out that we, we're going to put our space elevator, Galactic Harbor, uh, Earth port on the equator. And right now we're guessing south of Honolulu is one place. And then that would be like three or 4,000 kilometers to the west of the Galapagos or something like that. So you got plenty of room. And then they, there would be one in the middle of the Atlantic and one in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So that would be three. And our architecture at the present time is two space elevators per galactic harbor. And we call it a galactic harbor because we're going to combine the tremendous uh, transportation infrastructure with the obvious uh, development of enterprise. Uh, the idea of having uh, refueling, replacement, uh, assembly of spacecraft at GEO is alive and well right now, and contracts are being awarded. If you could get there routinely, safely, uh, inexpensively, the enterprise activity at GEO would just blossom. So we're calling a galactic harbor in the combination of transportation infrastructure and development of entrepreneurial enterprises. And so the idea is we have an earth port and we have two tethers. We have the principal up and that's where everything goes up. That's where you're gonna make your most money in the first few years. And then we have a second one that's two things. One is it's a backup in case the first is uh, in trouble. So you have a backup so that the financial investors know they're gonna have revenue. And then the second thing is you're going to send up tethered climbers on one and you batch them up together and bring them down on the other. So we can reuse your tether climbers and stuff like that. So you have one tether all up, one tether mostly up because that's where the revenue is. And then you bring things down on it also. But, you know, if you're going up, you got to stop. You got to stop going up to bring stuff down. So, you know, it's a little bit complex. So the idea is you have two space elevators per galactic harbor and we have three galactic harbors. Now, my concept is, you know, the U.S. and whoever wants to go with us would be in the Pacific, and then we would have uh, whoever wants to build one in the Atlantic, European Space Agency, and the Chinese over in the uh, Indian Ocean or something like that, or Pacific or something like that. So uh, we, we see it developing as a competitive race to to do that because what we're really doing is putting a permanent infrastructure to our destinations out there. 
and the demands are so high that we really have to think about a dual space access architecture. It's the only real way to fulfill our dreams. And we've got dreams. If you talk to Jeff Bezos, he's got dreams. You talk to Elon Musk, he's got dreams. They're just a little short, short on <laughs> execution of mass. That's all. They, you know, they have big dreams, and I, I love them for it. I mean, they're, they're remarkable people, and they've had great success. And I don't want to take anything away from those guys, but let's have them think a little bit bigger. So, will will things will the space elevator open up asteroid mining? properly as in i can that seems to be one of the things that everyone was talking about and it's gone a little bit quiet again and but the ability to get serious hardware up into into space and then bring serious amounts of of stuff back down presumably that that it's made for asteroid mining isn't it yes it's made for moving mass and if you want to move mass like mining equipment then that's what it is. Now, I have a little company called, uh, what is it called? Zodiac Planetary Services. And we would like to uh, do planetary, I mean, uh, lunar uh, prospecting, find out X, Y location of all the water. And we've got a unique way of doing that. So I'm somewhat conversant on the issues of uh, space resource uh, mining and stuff like that. And it turns out that if you really want to do that, asteroid mining, resources on the moon, resources on Mars, you have to have big equipment and you can't build the big equipment there. You can build big buildings, you know, the the, the printing of, of buildings and stuff, we've shown all that. But, you know, huge metal gears and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's hard to do all that stuff. So let's take it up. Now, here's a little proposal that I've written a paper on and hopefully it gets published in the near future is that if you want to go with the dreams of the L5 Society, the National Space Society, and Gerald K. O'Neill, and Jeff Bezos, literally, and you want to have a huge uh, rotating cylinder at L5, the current plan is you need 11 million tons to the L5. They want a half a million from the Earth and, and 10.5 million tons from Mars. I mean, from the moon. Well, so you got to develop a colony on the moon before you can develop a colony at L5. And then you got to develop manufacturing on the moon so you could build your stuff. Our proposal is L5 direct. Our manufacturing facilities on the earth are still really, really, really good. And if we build our windows and radiation protection and our computers and our all that stuff on the earth and send it directly to L5 instead of going by way of a community on the moon, we could do it sooner, faster, and a lot better. So the proposal is you can actually do a space elevator dedicated to L5. And then you could do a colony at L5 and skip all this other baloney about developing a <laughs> colony on the moon first and then going to L5, you know. It, it, and uh, so we believe that the delivery of mass, the geosynchronous and beyond, is required to fulfill the dreams of many today. That's really where we're at. <laughs> the only thing that crosses my mind with the director L5 and, and I've heard Bezos talking about this as well, is is the sort of desire to to move industry off Earth. And so you've got the industry 
on the moon or in the asteroid belt and so that you're because the earth is obviously we're, we're pushing it to the limit as it is now without without having to manufacture a minute millions of tons to go <laughs> out into space which could be manufactured i suppose off world i mean what what's your response to that yes <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah, my my vision is I, I'm an engineer who builds things. My vision is, uh, you know, the next five years or so, and I stretch it to the next fifteen so that I can look at you know big concepts and stuff like that. But you know, moving manufacturing off of Earth is really a great vision, and I support it completely. I think that's got to be done. There's no doubt about it. But in 15 years, no, it'll be more like 50 or 100. And, and oh, by the way, if you want to move stuff off Earth, uh, you need movement of mass. Oh, oh, that means you need space elevators. So, you know, now I would love, I just want to make sure everybody understands. I would love to have teleportation. <laughs> or I would love to have anti-gravity and all that kind of stuff and make it a lot easier. But as far as I can tell, as an engineer who's worked in the space arena for many, many years, this is as close as we've come. This is as close as we've come to becoming a Star Trek or a Star Wars or something like that. The vision of the future where you actually have huge manufacturing off-planet, you have colonies and stuff like that. The dreams of many can be fulfilled if we can move massive tonnage off the Earth. Have Has anyone looked into the point where you trans or or the feasibility i'm 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 about to say something even more speculative than than space elevators but the orbital ring i'm led to believe is is kind of like the ultimate for for pulling stuff off the earth's surface so has anyone looked into the at what point the orbital ring takes over from space elevators or am i just plain wrong <laughs> about the no, orbital no, ring no no that, that's that's perfectly reasonable Turns out we have a, a gentleman that comes to our conference about every three years. We have a yearly conference for the International Space Elevator Consortium. And uh, he comes about every three years and gives us an update on his orbital ring uh, planning and activities and everything else. And I believe we can do an orbital ring. Okay, I, I think that could be done. However, he keeps skipping the execution phase of how we get mass to the orbital ring altitude and uh you know we, we keep explaining that you know if we had a space elevator then an orbital ring could be very easy to build uh and he keeps saying no i'm doing orbital rings which is fine and i support him <laughs> and he's really good and he comes every three years and he has a great story and i believe it's there and if you give me 100 years, 150 years, I think we'll have a lot of orbital rings at different altitudes, and it'll it'll be reasonable. Been, this has been brilliant because it has kind of uh, won me back over. Because I was I was I I I, I um, bought that book from uh, the ad uh, via Ad Astra. Your name's in it, of course. It's volume right. one, number one of the Space Elevator magazine, and I I, I got this from the um, from the BIS library. And and so I was I I have been a massive fan of the space elevator, but like I said, it, it's sort of over the last three or four years that it, it's 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 only really I've seen the sort of negative press, and I guess it's because no one spotted this 
this this change in material science maybe maybe the graphene material science is going faster than people thought it would oh i i believe that's true turns out that understanding of graphene is really up in the air it turns out i've heard comments by the graphene associates uh, you know society in the us that are uh, definitely show a lack of information and so i think that the movement in the last three years have been very, 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 very encouraging to us space elevator guys. And it puts us in to the mode that we can dream again. We can dream again and we can have visions that are as powerful and as strong as Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and NASA and European Space Agency and the Japanese and the Chinese. Space elevators are now standing up tall. Of course, we don't have too many people screaming in the wind, uh, our community is small, but what we're trying to do is get our vision out and see that maybe some people will buy into our vision and then we can start talking to the right people about the next steps. Yeah, so what, why isn't there a, a Bezos or a, or a Musk of space elevators? Why, what, you know, because in, in the same way that Musk stuck his oar in with Hyperloop, for example, what, why, why hasn't someone like Musk or Musk himself done the same with space elevators? I mean, although I, I guess Ma- yeah. I guess there's a conflict of interest for him, but <laughs> well, see now, I, I don't believe there's a conflict of interest. In the next 15 years, it's going to be rocket dominated. What we need to do is have a dual access architecture that uses both. Rockets will be alive and well, doing really superbly for many, many years. I'm not worried about rockets at all. They're going to be spectacular. Uh, but I've I've had a quote from Mr. Uh, must that he says that he'll start thinking about space elevators when somebody builds a footbridge with the material. And so what he's saying is, I'm not going to worry about space elevators until you show me, okay? You know, the old Kansas Mm. thing, show me the, the stuff. And so I think the answer is yes. We need to show everybody the material is there, whether it's a footbridge and somebody walks across the Tim or whether it's a, a you know, a, a, a piece of material hanging down a kilometer from a bridge or something. We need to show that we can do it. And that's one of the first demonstrations that we want to do. And that's part of the funding that would go into the preparing for. And so we're, we're looking for the funders for, you know, that initial step to show that we can do it. And uh, and I believe Mr. Musk has the right attitude. You know, if we can't show the material, it's not ready for big money investment. And Mr. Uh, Bezos has the right idea. He wants to build the road to space. I'm just saying there ought to be two lanes, uh, you know, versus one. And so I, I think those people have fantastic visions and they are executing their vision, and I applaud them for that. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe your vision could include another road. Yeah, it's it's almost like they're building the the dirt track, and you're building the canal. Correct, right? <laughs> or they're building the airplane to move the precious cargo, and we're building the train track. Yeah, you know, it's something like that. It, it's complementary and compatible not competitive. 
Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one final question then that that that's not space elevator uh, related, but I'm sure that I'll have I'm sure I'll have loads of questions from from listeners and 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 I'll 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 get you back on maybe to to answer them. But um, I've got one final question. Hearing that you were that you've dabbled in a bit of guitar back in the sixties, um, <laughs> <laughs> have you got a a, a favourite space space related song? And you're not allowed Bowie because that's uh, that's banned at the moment. Uh, yeah, uh, for our our space playlist. Well, we we have a group that shows up every once in a while, and they they're called I think something like the Space Elevator Group, and they sing Space Elevator songs. And uh, <laughs> the hilarious aspect is, you got to listen to elevator music for two weeks while you're traveling that'd be bad <laughs> but it's it's a funny little twist of terms and everything their music is acceptable oh, yeah. elevator not... music yeah well, that's... yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the space elevator band uh, uh, can, can, are they on spotify i'm gonna have to hunt them down the space elevator i have no idea it's well, been well. a few years since i've listened to them thank you very much for taking the time and and you really are mr space elevator so this has been absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. I've really enjoyed it, Matthew. I think this is a very, very good interchange. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Okay, I'm convinced. I'm back on board. I'm, I'm with you completely. Genuinely awesome. Genuinely, yeah. genuinely an awesome thing. If we can get rockets and space elevators going, this really is the start of the next phase of human exploration properly oh how much are we going to see in our lifetime i just i really hope i really hope it's on the timeline that both musk and swan are projecting you know if 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 it really is that it'd be great and the and the world will recover quite quickly economically if it's done that fast as well and of course there is some environmental mm. things of trying to get off earth and 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 make it happen and actually, yeah, that, that case about the space elevator being vitally important because actually rockets just aren't <laughs> very efficient. Uh, and that's all there is no, to it. We should note out that there's a couple of good launches to watch this, this week. We've just obviously missed the uh, Falcon 9 um, launching the Bishop's Airlock um, for... Um, Mm. For nano racks, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Did you call that Bishop's Airlock? Bishop, is that what yeah, you said? Bishop's Airlock. Yeah, that's a cracking bit of that. I think I drank that in uh, Somerset <laughs> somewhere once. <laughs> yeah, Stinky Bishop's Airlock. Yeah, this is definitely <laughs> a good name for a beer. There's no two ways about it. Uh, there, yeah. There's going to be an exciting one, the uh, the Rocket Three by um, uh, Astra Space. That's that should be an interesting one. A wonderful name. Yeah, yeah. They've been, they've really thought about it. Uh, what should we call it? <laughs> there's of course the mighty Delta Four Heavy this week, so that that should be cool. Didn't make the uh, shortlist this year, I'm afraid. Uh, there's the Electron that did. So this week you get on the 10th of December your chance to check out Falcon Nine to make sure it is who you want to vote for, or the Electron on the 12th of December see if that's what you want to vote for you're not going to see a Soyuz launch but you are going to see a Long March 11 but not a Long March not a Long March 5 so or an Ariane 5 so you've got a couple in there that you can check out to see if that's who you want to vote for um thanks Chris for joining me on this on this quick but long pub podcast 
My my pleasure. Can I just add one more thing? Are you watching The Mandalorian? I, do you know what's really annoying? I, I, I'm not watching The Mandalorian because I uh, I don't have Disney. I, I've done no way of watching it. Oh. Which is very annoying. Well, if anyone is watching it, I I want to know, if anyone is watching it, this is not spoilers, uh, I want to know if you think, uh, Chapter 10, if you think that there's maybe a little nod to uh, current uh, rocket technology, uh, a little a little jokey reference to it that I think I spotted. So that's one for the Spodcast to uh, okay. give me a shout right. out. Yeah, let, I'll look out for that. when I Because I, I do obviously plan on okay. watching it. No, I've actually started watching Alien Worlds, which is quite interesting. That came up... Uh, of on the old oh, on yeah. the old Discord, yeah. and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll give that a go. So I started watching that. That was that was very interesting. Very um, felt very BBC, didn't it? But uh, yeah, it's a bit PBSy. I found, but it is still good. I've I've been enjoying it. As yeah, well. yeah. I mean, hyper speculative, but of course, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but course. Uh, yeah, it's funny because <laughs> I used to have a book very similar to that when I was a, when I was a very young kid and and i wonder what happened to it i can't even remember what it's called but it was it, it pretty much ran on a almost identical pretty much the same theme uh chris what are you going to do this week this week i am just enjoying the last few days that i'm going to be spending on my little island with kaya and just you know just just drinking it in it's such a beautiful place but uh all all too soonly i will be home again which i'm also looking forward to as well so uh many many of our future podcasts will be from from liverpool the, you know the police with the corrupt mayor um <laughs> but, but yeah my, my time here has been absolutely fantastic longest i've ever been away from from home but i've i've, I've really loved it awesome how yeah. about you what a beautiful part of the world i should be staying in this this very beautiful part of the world it's been absolutely glorious yeah. day today i went for a walk and the sun shining ah Oh, Nothing lovely. quite beats the sun and the not the sun and the sea, does it? No. It's just absolutely beautiful. You can't get enough of that. Love being near water. I just love it. Exploration is in the in the souls of humans, isn't it? And yes. I think when you stand you stand on a on a hill looking out at sea, it stirs that inner explorer. And yeah. you just want to get out there. Hurl your bodies into the void. And or maybe go home and have a cup of tea. Oh, what a, that's the ultimate. <laughs> Hurl your body into the void, then go home and have a cup of tea. <laughs> if, if life doesn't get better than that, I don't know what does. That's, that's it. In fact, talking of cup of tea, I'm definitely going to make myself a nice cup of tea right now. Yeah, Yorkshire me too. tea, me too. just like Tim Peake. Oh, it's got to be Yorkshire. I can only get Twinings here. But yeah, I mean, we could go on for hours oh, here, Matthew. <laughs> twinings. Uh, well, well, at least it's Twinings. At least it's not Lipton's oh, yellow. Oh, oh. Typhoo. Why is that the only tea you can get abroad? Oh, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. But I found some twinings in this little shop and I was just like, yes. <laughs> so for any of our majority American listeners, get yourself Yorkshire tea. Definitely. Or, or I'll, accept, I'll accept PG tips or, or uh, Sainsbury's Red Label. Mm. Sainsbury's Red Label is very good as well. Not bad. Um, uh, uh, get get yourself one of those brews. Uh, that is a proper cup of tea, not your Lipton's yellow. And don't talk about any other herbal tea as a cup of tea. No, that's not that's not a cup of tea. That's a cup of herbal tea. No, you no, say it no. like that. You cannot call it a cup of tea. You a cup need of tea to has to be. Get it in there. A, they call it English breakfast or a builder's tea or whatever it's called. Give it a couple of minutes to brew as well. Don't be impatient. You've got to give it time. Give it some time. Take the tea bag Stir out. Stir the bag, done. jostle the bag. Yeah. 
then add then a bit of milk. Make milk. sure it's make sure it's got milk in. Don't listen to snobs who say it didn't have milk in. That's that's Darjeeling or <laughs> or some other type of tea. Cup of tea. Just get yourself. Oh my gosh! And then you'll understand why the English drink more tea than all other nations combined. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. It's the it's the best thing because it's the best drink of the yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not over the top like coffee. Mm, but I'm a big coffee man. I am a bit like, of a coffee snob. I'm very much I like my coffee espresso and machine I, at home. Obviously. And, yeah, but a cup of tea is a different experience. I used to really enjoy our times going for coffees. Yeah. Chris, oh, when we used to oh, escape, escape the madhouse and go for a coffee. Yeah. That, was, that was the best, wasn't it? I, I them, them's those were the days, man. Fond memories. <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> Oh man, not that I will ever teach diploma ever again. Anyway, <laughs> we, we, we gotta go. Yep. Bye, base podcast. Base podcast. Base podcast. Base podcast. Base podcast.